Welcome, one and all, to the Cool Worlds podcast with me, your host, Professor David Kipping. This week, it is my pleasure to be joined by Adam Frank, who is a professor of physics and astronomy at Rochester University. Adam and I both share a passion. We both have the bug of wanting to answer the question that has haunted us, I think, probably most of our lives. Are we alone in the universe? And so I would count Adam amongst the leading experts in the world in SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. In fact, one of the things that I think is most remarkable with Adam's work is that he has been pioneering and pushing and advancing the expansion of SETI from the traditional radio search era that you know was dawned with Frank Drake, with Project Ozma, the very first searches for alien transmissions out there, to now expanding it beyond just radio to thinking more broadly about what we now call techno signatures, signatures of technology around other planets, which isn't necessarily just radio. For example, he is the current principal investigator of a grant from NASA, which is frankly one of the first grants we've had in techno signatures for many, many years, that is simulating and figuring out how we could detect the signatures of climate change on another exoplanet. Just in the same way we are affecting our planet through CFCs, through carbon dioxide production, so too might other civilizations. And we could potentially even detect that with upcoming and existing facilities. So a completely different way of looking for alien civilizations and a way that doesn't even demand that they're interested in talking to us. This is leakage, essentially. So I always love sitting down with Adam and talking to him about these ideas, the possibilities of alien civilizations, their behaviors, the future of our own civilization. And, you know, frankly, he is one of those people that I enjoy shooting the breeze with on these topics more than any other. And I think that'll come across in this conversation. So please do enjoy my chat with Professor Adam Frank. The first thing I want to talk to you about, Adam, was, you know, you're an expert in astrobiology, the search for life in the universe. Wasn't your original background, but like so many of us, you got drawn towards this problem over time. And you have been in the field, not as long as like the origins of the field of SETI, but you've been, a, you've been in the field long enough to see changes happening. And I know you're very well read about the deeper history of what's been going on in the search for life in the universe. How has in a broad brush sense, the government, the federal uh, interest changed and evolved, the seriousness, the commitment in this search. How has that changed over the last 40, 50, 60 years? Yeah, so I was a graduate student in the late 80s and early 90s. And, you know, then SETI was still very, all, all of astrobiology, but, you know, SETI in particular was still, you know, raised eyebrows, mm -hmm. right? The giggle factor, as we call it, was still very much in play. And there was, you know, kind of the sense that, you know, don't go into that. That's not, no, you know, nobody who's serious is doing that. And even astrobiology, even the search, you know, even the idea of thinking about life, there wasn't much going on then because you know mars after the viking lander mm -hmm. mars seemed to be dead so there wasn't much thinking in the solar system so other than people doing sort of like uh origin of life studies 
there just wasn't there just wasn't a whole lot uh, to do or think about for astrobiology, um, and of course with NASA uh, there had been these two three events that happened for NASA with relative to SETI, where in the early '80s um, Senator William Proxmire had given uh, a NASA program a SETI program had given it his Golden Fleece Award, which is mm -hmm. he awarded this to uh, projects that he thought were wasting taxpayers' money. Um, and so he actually managed to get language in the budget, Senate budget, that cut that funding. And it was only Carl Sagan directly intervening. He was, Carl Sagan was already kind of a, you know, public figure then. So before that, there was funding when... That was, I guess, going back to Project Ozma. There was a, a continuous thread of SETI funding. Well, no, it's not necessarily that. No, Ozma was just done. What's cool about Ozma is he just did it on his own. I mean, that's really the the the, the courage of Frank Drake. He just convinced his, you know, he's a new hire at, uh, at <laughs> that was his, his own startup money, basically. This yeah, is 1950. Yeah, he said it's 1959. Okay, and uh, he's a new hire at Green Bank, and you know they're putting up the telescope still, or it's just newly built, and he just like you know, over lunch, you know, at some greasy spoon diner, convinces, you know, talks to his colleagues like, hey, well, maybe we could look for, you know, we could look for aliens. <laughs> um, and they were like, yeah, okay, sounds like a cool idea. So they had to build all the equipment themselves because also Drake didn't want to make it seem like we were, you know, wasting money on this. So they built most of the equipment themselves or used off the shelf stuff. And they ran a year long search. And that was the first time he, so he totally did that on his own. Okay. No, the, no government. No involved. government funding right. at all. Okay. But then, you know, SETI picked up, the interest in SETI picked up after that. So, you know, it becomes very public what he does. Um, he gets the call from the National Academy of Science to host this meeting, the meeting on yeah. which, on interstellar communications, which is where the Drake equation comes from. And that was, was the order of the dolphin. They, there was like eight participants. They called themselves that, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. There were, I think, eight people. I think it was eight people at the meeting. You know, uh, uh, Otto Struve, um, Carl Sagan, a couple of other, and a bunch of other people. Yeah, they called themselves the Order of the Dolphin. Because who was it? I can't remember his name, but the researcher. Oh, yeah. There was a dolphin was the researcher. Dolphin. Yeah, yeah, the dolphin. Talk about dolphin language. Yeah, yeah. supposedly. Uh -huh. I mean, it yeah. turned out to all be not true, okay. but that's okay. <laughs> uh, so, but, so then after, but in the, you know, in the 60s, there's a lot of interest from the government and from about, about SETI mm -hmm. that, you know, this is, should be a viable thing. So NASA was willing. NASA was actually behind SETI for, you know, the 60s and into the 70s. Um, and, they, you know, not a huge amount, but they were, you know, they were funding efforts. And there was this Project Cyclops, which was also the NSF, the idea of we're going to build a really big um, array. So, so there was there's it, Apollo era, basically. There's a lot of enthusiasm. There was in enthusiasm that. and there wasn't, you know, it, the there wasn't a, um, a stigma yet right. associated with it. It still wasn't mainstream by any stretch of the imagination, but there wasn't a stigma. So then, you know, Proxmire does this thing in the 80s. And then, so eventually the funding gets put back. And again, this was a small project. It wasn't a huge thing. Then in the 90s, once again, NASA tries to start doing some funding of SETI searches. And I think, I think it was called the High Resolution Microwave Survey. So they even like gave it a name that didn't really sound <laughs> like it was had to do with SETI. Yeah. But somehow... A congressman, two congressmen found out, I think it was 90 and 92, and I may have those dates a little bit off by a couple of years. Each time congressmen you know, stood up on the floor of, the, of Congress and used 
the SETI funding to whip NASA. You know, mm. basically it was just a way for them to make money. You know, mm. one of them proclaims, well, this is, you know, he shoots it down, puts in language that says NASA cannot fund any SETI, and then proclaims, well, this is the end of Martian hunting season. And the other guy for the other congressman says, you know, why do we need to search for little and green men when I can just go down to the National Enquirer or get a copy and see, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, get pictures? So I think the first one was, uh, I wrote down the name here, Senator Richard Bryan, right, from Nevada, I think, was the first one who's yeah. who actually did a press release afterwards and yes. said, "I've successfully yeah. got waste, stopped wasting this money right. on SETI." Right. Yeah. So it was a way for 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 politicians to make some hay, you know, get some press out of this because, of course, everybody's interested in yeah. everybody loves aliens, and so after that, NASA was like, "We're just, I, you know." I, I was not part of NASA, so I don't know. But you can get the sense they were just like, we're not going down this mm. road again. And you saw this. And then, of course, in the 90, 95 is the first detection of a of a extrasolar planet around an Earth-like, or sorry, sun-like right, star. Sun star. Yeah. And then there's the Allen Hills meteorite with Mars that suddenly rekindled. It, this, it, it seems as if there was evidence, you know, now we don't believe it's true anymore, but that this rock, this chunk of Mars that had been blown to Earth had some evidence for the possibilities of life. That was the famous Bill Clinton on Bill, the White House. Yeah. I had yeah. to watch that clip this morning. Just coincidentally, I was watching it because it's just such a, a strange historic moment. It's what we all dream of, right. of having the president make that kind of yeah. announcement and yeah. scientifically it's huge impact. But of course it, it dissolved away. And what was the, yeah, what was the, the legacy of that false start? Huge legacy, yeah. huge legacy. Cause that's where the pathfinder came from. Yeah. It was what that did is it reinvigorated research on Mars, you know, astrobiology on Mars, right? So mm -hmm. the idea of follow the water, so what this did is it made people focus on Mars again. And instead of saying, we're going to go look for life, we're going to do this in stages. And the first thing we're going to do is prove that Mars once had water. Because that was what, you know, that was a very clever idea because that's of interest anyway. Like whether or not there's life on Mars, we saw these what appeared to be dry river valleys, et cetera, on Mars. Um, so that suddenly there was this huge program to start going to Mars again and build these amazing technologies of the rovers and such. Uh, and so first find life and I'm uh, sorry, sorry, first find water, proof of water, <laughs> yeah. and then find proof of life. So it was suddenly in the mid 1990s, astrobiology is reinvigorated. They had a plan, they had a strategy, they were, they were were going for it. They had yeah. guns blazing. Yeah, there was excitement yeah. about yeah. it too. Yeah. And so, and for exoplanets, suddenly we knew there were planets right. orbiting other stars, which is, that's the first step, right? What's the, it's the second term in the Drake equation, mm -hmm. right? The first term is the uh, uh, number of stars or the frequency of star formation. And we already knew that. We knew that when Frank Drake in 1960 wrote the equation down on the board. But the second term was that question of whether or not there's other planets orbiting other stars goes back to the Greeks, right? In some sense, it's not directly, but Giordano Bruno was hung upside down and set fire to, you know, for his partly somewhat for his, uh, you know, his argument that there were, uh, you know, other yeah. stars had other. He said some other fairly outrageous yeah, stuff he was, as well. Uh, his, think, right? his story <laughs> is right. The, <laughs> the use not... of Giordano Bruno as a hero of science is a little bit complicated, and it's not clear that he. Or it does seem like the articles of uh, why he was brought up in front of the Inquisition had was not about astronomy, but his astronomical view certainly contributed to him. There'd probably be a Hollywood movie that 
that just takes that element exactly, and misportrays yeah. it one right. day. It's coming. <laughs> it will be one <laughs> yeah. day. And he'll be buff and he'll be like, you did a Bruno, hero of science. Because <laughs> he's Hugh Jackman playing that role, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's make the pitch right uh, yeah. now. Um, so, uh, so what happened was, is suddenly there was funding for astrobiology. And, you know, one of the interesting things from my own, my, from my own history is that, so at the University of Washington was um, Woody Sullivan, who was the only person when I was there who was interested in SETI. And everybody loved Woody, but there was still a sort of sense of like, oh, yes, that he's kind of out there. Um, and just and what year is this roughly we're was, talking about now? So that, that's like 88, okay. you know, when I get there, 86, 88. And then, of course, what was lovely is NASA starts in the mid-90s, uh, later 90s, NASA starts giving these this funding mm -hmm. for big funding for astrobiology institutes. And Woody becomes the director of the University of Washington. So I thought that was a beautiful turnaround, right? Yeah. You know, it's this big funding, there's a lot going on. And it's why the University of Washington became such a powerhouse yeah. in astrobiology with Vicki Meadows and all of her work in uh, uh, exoplanets. So. By the we're going into the 2000s now, astrobiology is a concern. There are there's funding for it. There's um, uh, there's people doing it. There's real data. The data is just flowing in from the exoplanet studies uh, relevant to uh, to this quest these questions. And the and um, the question of atmospheric characterization for biosignatures is beginning to rise. People are really thinking about oxygen and methane and uh, but but techno signatures. The idea of intelligent life is still like no. And it's literally even in the language for NASA's call for proposals for the exobiology program had language in it like, oh, nothing about intelligence. Mm. And it so, wasn't explicitly that, but it was like SETI, no radio SETI. So just to, just to explain a little bit here, the, the biosignatures aspect, which we attach to astrobiology traditionally, is the search for atmospheric gases that are a product of life, like oxygen or something. Yeah. And then sat next to that is techno signatures, which is also a product of life, but it's technology exclusively. So it has to be something like right. us that's building satellites or affecting city the lights. City or, lights. Well, we can talk more about what techno signatures right. yeah, that'd are. That'd be good to get into right. as well. But just, to, just yes. as a definition, right. um, and, and I get from your perspective, you're saying this just seemed an artificial boundary had been drawn between these two. Right, right. And that and it was because of the history. Because NASA, had, I think, because the way I read it, NASA had gotten burned so many times by any search for intelligent life that, yeah, it was just trying to stay away from it. Um, and it was Jill Tarter who recognized, Jill Tarter, the great, you know, there will be a statue to Jill Tarter somewhere. Once we find life somewhere, there will mm -hmm. be a statue to Jill Tarter. Because just her heroism and her, her, her kindness and yet tenacity in pursuing this field. She was the one who recognized that, like, well, SETI, SETI's really a, a hunt for techno-signatures, right? If everybody's interested in biosignatures, what is SETI about? It's techno-signatures. So there's really no difference. So she was the one who coined that term. Um, and as far as I'm, and, and so then what happened was if we're still following the history is that eventually in so so techno signatures was still a no-no right from you know the, from so nasa the, just said don't even bother asking for money yeah for this, for this. but yeah. biosignatures yes biosignatures no. come on bring yeah. it in yeah okay. you know more proposals techno signatures yeah please don't bother us and you know they tried i mean that's there were some small programs but in general you know the researchers all knew you probably were not going to get something funded and then in 2018, somebody put in the congressional budget, some congressman put in 
a request that said there should be $10 million for techno signatures. And it was based on that, that there was meeting this. NASA was like, okay, what do we do if we get this money? And they called a meeting, the very famous uh, 2018 met, meeting. That's where you yeah. and I met. Yeah. And right, was, that was such an amazing meeting because we were all there and we were like kids in a candy store. It was just, <laughs> oh my God, like, you know. They're gonna let us do this? Like, this is awesome. Yeah. This field that had been starved for money for so long, suddenly like they were asking us, right. like, what would you do? And I think that's the birth of modern, you know, the modern era, the beginning of the modern era. So it was out of that that we, a few of us, got together. And we'd already put in one proposal, Jason Wright, Jacob Hakmizra, um, Ravi Kapoorpu, um, and it had already been rejected. But then the second we put it in again, and it got accepted. So in 2019, we got a grant through, very small grant. We did purposely, we're like, hey, we just want a little money. Um, but it went through, and that was the first, you know, especially atmospheric techno signatures grant ever done. So maybe tell us just briefly, because... I'm sure there's lots of people who, who don't really know what goes into writing a grant or what a grant looks like. What what question were you trying to tackle in right. that in that grant and and what came out of it? Yeah. So so you know, of course when you write a grant you have to you have to be very specific about what question you're taking on, how you think why you think it's worthwhile, why you guys are the right people, you know, or the right folks to mm. to, to to do the grant to to carry it through. Um, and so, and you also have to send it to the program that is relevant to that because you can send something to a program and they'll be like, this is not what we do. We're rejecting it out of hand. So we sent our proposal to the NASA exobiology program. And the, what we were arguing for, what we wanted to do was, um, uh, at, we, we were called ourselves cats, categorizing atmospheric techno signatures. So what has happened in the field of, of, of astrobiology over the last 20 years is the recognition that you can use an atmosphere uh, to, you can do spectroscopy of the atmosphere, look at the light passing through the atmosphere during a transit, and there will be the imprint uh, in the light of whatever gases are in the atmosphere. So that's what's called atmospheric characterization. And we think we can, you know, uh, for, for biosignatures, for things like looking for a biosphere, we think like if you could find oxygen and methane together in an atmosphere in this way, that would be a very strong indication that you had a, uh, uh, you know, source of biological, strong source of biological activity on the planet. So what we were proposing was to use the exact same method to look for signatures of technology on the planet. So one of the things we said is let's look for atmospheric anomalies, pollutants, like for example, chlorofluorocarbons, right? So we know that on Earth, we use chlorofluorocarbons dumped, you know, huge amounts of it into the atmosphere. It's from refrigerants and- Refrigerants yeah. and spray cans and whatnot. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a chemical that would not be in the atmosphere if it wasn't for industrial activity. And we said, let's do a, you know, very detailed modeling program where we, you know, uh, uh, take a climate model, add CFCs into the atmosphere, let the climate come to equilibrium because CFCs are a very strong uh, greenhouse gas, uh, and then do synthetic observations of that atmosphere as if it was, you know, the atmosphere was passing in front of its star or the planet was passing in front of the star and see whether or not like JWST could detect it. So that's what we were proposing to do. And, uh, and then we had other projects. We also had city lights. We had um, looking for uh, the glint or the, the, re the reflectance, uh, changes in reflectance of, of the starlight because of solar panels. Mm -hmm. So we had a whole list, a menu. From satellites? Like uh, no, no, from like a large scale deployment of solar panels either oh, okay. on the planet or maybe on the moon of a right. planet or a, you know just any, any body where you really cover a fraction of the planet with solar panels. So the glint is that if you get at just that low angle of incidence, 
You, yeah, so glint get... actually is the wrong word. No, it's actually there's a there's a reflectance edge. So if you okay. look at the reflected light, you just take a spectra and you look at the re reflected light. What you see is this is this is there's a great biosignature also that does this called the red edge, like chlorophyll. Mm. All the leaves on the planet leave an imprint on the reflected light uh, from from Earth, and you can see the satellites. We've used our own satellites to look for this, and it's a very clear. Um, jump in the reflectance at around in the red I think red Sagan regions. first yes. noted that in, was it was it Galileo? There was a, it was Galileo. Yeah. They turned around, right, they turned Galileo around, took Earth pictures, and was yeah. like, oh my God, this is a clear indication that Earth has life on it. So what's great is there's a UV edge in um, Avi Loeb and the um, Manasvi Lingam showed this. There's a clear, any kind of chemical or, or mineral that would be use in a um, in a solar panel would leave some kind of reflectance edge in the UV. So that's another thing we said. Oh, let's you know let's take that first initial study and do it in much more detail. Can I just ask? Because obviously, most of the solar panels we build tend to be uh, silicon based, right? Right. But um, it's not the only way you can build a solar exactly. panel. So I'm thinking of I think is in Spain. There's a there's an example of this kind of solar power plant where it's all just mirrors. And they just uh, concentric mirrors that reflect all the light to a to a single point, and they basically boil water. Boil it's, like, water. it's like the magnifying glass yeah. effect, more yeah. or less, right? You're yeah. just a kid burning an ant with a magnifying glass, concentrating all the light to one point to get heat. And so you're then driving a turbine. There's no semiconductor physics, I think, involved. No, no, there in isn't. No, it's just pure mirrors. You're just collecting the heat. By, yeah. You know, so you there know. are. Would that be? That would be undetectable, I would guess. With this. Under this scheme, like maybe there would, right. it would be interesting to look to see if you were do it deploying it large scale. It's always about large scale. Mm -hmm. You know, so doing it that way, I, I don't know. You know, we'd have to see. Um, but you know, solar. What the great thing about solar panels is, you know, you can cover Saudi Arabia, or you can cover the Sahara Desert in solar panels, and that's it. You just run wires up to them. So that's why. Yeah, we first thought about solar panels. I love and how easy that sounds, but in practice, it's probably a bit hard of that. But that's yeah. fine. You just, just cover the. <laughs> no, no one's living there. They won't care. Just... Yeah, oh, that's a typical thing. Uh, that's a whole other story to get into about impacts of yeah unintended consequences of energy to energy harvesting deployment technologies. Um, but the point. So those are just some examples of the things we said we will study this. You know, give us the money. And we'll study this. So um, the grant was funded, and that was so that was a real milestone. That was the first one, and now I think there's uh, maybe two or three or four NASA-funded exo. You know, I think they're from almost all in the exobiology program. I'm not sure, but you know, the, so so the, the doors are opening. The doors are opening, and I don't expect suddenly there's going to be a huge techno signature. But there's enough now that the you know what we call the giggle factor. So the giggle factor is something. I don't know who came up with the term, but just that any mention of intelligent life, wanting to think about intelligent life, was met with raised eyebrows and smirks. And it just, you know, with the rise of biosignature science and master biology, it just, this is stupid. You know, you can't say like, yes, it's sober science to look for, you know, planets covered by microbes. But as soon as you mention intelligence, that's a joke. Like, wait, why are you saying that? So, you know, I think we're, we've, we're leaving that era. And now, you know, what's great about techno signatures is you can basically do the same same wavelength regime. You don't have to do anything different. You don't have to put new telescopes up to do techno signatures versus biosignatures. So I think there, yeah, the dam has broke. And I think we're going to see the integration with of, of techno signatures into astrobiology. It's just another branch of the field. So with techno signatures, we've talked about one. I mean, I guess the classic techno signature that we were looking for back in Frank Drake's day and Jill Tarter's most of her career was radio transmissions. Right. And now we've evolved that to be all sorts of signs of technology. One concern I have uh, as, and I'm working this field, so right. you know, I, I, I support it fully, <laughs> but I have this concern, maybe we all do, 
is uh, thinking about the story of Percival Lowell. And we've talked about this before privately, but you know, he was convinced there was canals on, on Mars. And to him, it made sense there would be canals because he looked around and that was the sign of, of the most advanced technology pretty much of his time was, was canal systems. And we mentioned the example here of solar panels. Again, we're sort of covering large swaths of land as he saw with this particular type of technology. But we look back at the idea of canals and kind of laugh at it like, well, that's a silly, archaic thing for a civilization to do. That, that's not what an advanced civilization would, would do. Isn't this a flaw to some degree of any, any effort we, we make to conceive of a techno signature? It's always going to be a product of our limited thinking, our time. And so are we always looking for mirrors of ourselves or even past version of ourselves rather than truly that which might lie out there? Is this how, how do we how do we get how do we escape our own heads? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And, you know, it's interesting if you look at the history of biosignatures, right? So um, people start, I mean, you know, there's work on biosignatures before 2000, but, you know, after the exoplanet revolution, as I call it. You know, there's more and more work on biosignatures and people become, start to become more sophisticated about their thinking. So first it's like oxygen and methane, you know, which had been around since Lovelock. Um, and then people realize like, well, you know, there's other ways to, you know, we realize there's a couple ways to make oxygen on a planet that have nothing to do with life. Uh, and then, you know, people start thinking about false positives. How else can we be fooled? And now we're at a point with biosignatures where people are thinking about this idea of agnostic biosignatures. How do we look for life when we don't have any preconceived ideas about what, you know, what the metabolism is based on? Are they carbon based? Are they? Um, and I think the same thing can happen with techno signatures. Well, maybe it's about how, how, how is that even possible? Tell us about how, yeah, so what is an agnostic biosignature? Yeah. So that's, that's, so people, this is the interesting thing that people are playing with. So one idea that comes uh, from Sarah Walker and Lee Cronin is this idea of complexity. Right. You look for mo if you go, OK, you're going to look for molecules in an atmosphere. Well, should you be looking for only the ones that your biochemistry uses? Or can you have some sort of measures that say that, look, what life does, what is like, you know, what is what would we think is generic to life? Well, evolution and, you know, uh, uh, um, with evolution is an evolution towards more complexity. So perhaps we should be looking for things in an atmosphere that have certain degrees of complexity, that if we think that there's a threshold um, that because evolution is based on um, uh, on heredity and on on selection, that selection, if you're, you know, if, if all life is always based on this idea of Darwinian selection, that there's a certain way in terms of the, com the components that you're driven to more complexity or higher levels of complexity. And if you can see where that maybe that threshold is between non-life and life, then you might be able to say like, okay, I found this thing in an atmosphere. It's a molecule. It's, it's, it's complexity number. It's at what they call the assembly number is beyond a threshold that this is strange. Like, you know, we, we're, we have a hard time understanding how, how non-selective physical processes could do that. Mm -hmm. So that's an example. That's just one example of, of, uh, of, of an agnostic, uh, bio signature. Um, and so I think we might be able to, you know, do the same thing for techno signatures as well. Yeah. The, the complexity thing is so when you first encounter this idea, which of course is obvious that life has historically become more and more complex, right. it's very puzzling from yeah. a physics perspective, because we were taught that the universe prefers to increase entropy over time, you know, make things more disordered. And so it's kind of, it, it is odd that biology evolution works, uh, it seems to work against that trend. Yes. And you might wonder, 
is that un universal. There was, um, I think it was uh, Andy Gold that wrote uh, in his Campion Explosion book uh, about the idea of how complexity is, if you start out with a fairly uh, simple life form and its genome mutates, it can easily add on something extra that it doesn't need. Mm -hmm. And largely that's not really gonna impinge its survivability that much. It's just an extra thing it doesn't need or, or maybe might have some benefit. But if you strip something away, because everything's in competition with everything else, you really can't afford usually to take away something. Right. And so it, it, it will not survive. It will not be able to compete anymore. And so this kind of explains why things progress towards ever, ever more complexity, because you can only kind of get an extra uh, competitive edge by adding, adding an extra fin right. onto the car or something right. in a way. It's almost right. like that. Is is there a deeper understanding you have beyond that of why? Because it is fascinating that complexity grows. Is that, do we, do you believe it to be universal trend of evolution? And, yeah, I, I and do believe up to a certain level. So, so, you know, this is goes on to a whole other topic that I'm working on now called semantic information. We just recently got a big grant from the found, uh, the Templeton foundation to study life to look at the uh, to study life from an information theoretic perspective, uh, in particular, what we're looking at is the way in which what's fundamental for life and its use of information is that what life cares about is not the kind of what we call Shannon and for the information that's built into our computers, which is what's called Shannon information or syntactic information. It's just like, it's about probabilities. Like, you know, how often does the symbol E come up in a word? That's instead what life, what life cares about is information that's relevant to its own viability, meaning. So the semantic part is meaning. So life you know, interacts with its environment, establishes correlations with its environment, and the part of the information of its, you know, that it's it's getting from the environment, only part of it matters. The part that is about its own ability to continue. Uh, Can is, you give us an example, just to zone this in a little bit? What's an example of a life form that uses information outside Yeah, so itself? we just had this new yeah. paper, which actually, we, we're a forager, right? So imagine a forager that's, you know, a cell that's like moving through a background and there's like, you know, there's, um, uh, uh, the little bits of food around and it's got to sense the food it's got to know where the you know it's got to be able to like sense that there's food over there and then move over towards that food as soon as it senses that food it is established an information correlation with the environment and then it goes and it you know eats the food and then it has to do that again imagine that its sensors had there was some flaw in its sensors right so that there was noise in the sensors that degrades its ability to sense the environment to, you know and and so what we were able to show in this recent paper that we just did is that there's a threshold where you add too much noise and suddenly the thing dies you know we could tell that there and that allowed us to i you know, really are uh, very accurately uh, uh, identify what parts of the information shared between the environment between the creature and the environment was semantic you know which some of the bits of information just don't matter they don't they don't help and they don't hurt they just like they're not relevant to the thing created you know, to to the creature um uh, surviving its own viability, so that was really nice. We were able. So it's almost to, like useful information, useful information, meaningful information. Yes, yeah. meaningful, useful information. Okay. And so what I think what happens is with the idea of complexity is that, you know, one of the things we're able to sort of understand from this is that you know you could put a sensor on a rock, but it's still a rock, right? But as you add more correlations, as you add more ability of a physical system to sense its environment and respond to the environment, at some point there's kind of like a phase change. You know, there's a shift that's going to happen where now this thing is becoming, it's becoming an agent. It's becoming autonomous, right? Because rocks are not autonomous. They're not agents. 
cells are autonomous and are agents. And so what we're trying to understand is where this threshold occurs in terms of information, semantic information. And I think that is always a, that's always an increase in complexity. You've got to add sensors. You've got to add the network of the relationship between the different sensors. You've got to, and by doing so, you're establishing ever richer um, ecology, information ecologies or information architectures between the, you know, the proto agent and the environment. So I think there's this idea of semantic information drives you to higher forms of complexity. To be alive is to be an agent, an autonomous agent, and to be an autonomous agent is to have, is to develop rich information architectures, complex information architectures. And I guess that also extends to some degree to our own experience in the modern human civilization where we're overwhelmed with information. Yeah. Yeah. And part of our challenge is figuring out what's worth my time, right. like this podcast to listen right. to. <laughs> or, definitely worth your time. Yeah, absolutely, this is worth it this is, for this your is, viability. This is very semantic <laughs> right here. <laughs> um, Glad we could get that in. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if there is an extension to societies. I think here. there is, I think there is. And then, and then it would get you to technology, to yes. techno signatures. Yes, it's funny, Caleb Scharf and I were just talking about this the mm. other day, because you know, Caleb, who's also interested in information and as, as a defining attribute of life, that right, at some point maybe there becomes so much noise, so much information noise in a, techno, in a civilization, like maybe there's a threshold, like with AI, that there's a threshold you have to get over in dealing with your AI, that you know, your AI can kill you in the sense, not like it's gonna rise up in Skynet and blow you up, but it just diffuses the amount of information that that it's hard to say what's semantic and what's not anymore. You're just overwhelmed by information and then it becomes very hard to tell what's true or not, right? A, a society is is always a, a network, right? And it's an information, it's a network across where information passes from node to node. And if you can no longer tell what's true, then how does, as a society, do you make the decisions that allow your society to be viable right right and so what we've seen with social media and everything you know, this is just off the you know the top of our heads but i think it's relevant that you can degrade the ability to make for the society acting as a whole to make decisions because you can't tell what information is true anymore so that might be i think that sort of works along these lines that there's you've lost you've degraded the semantic con semantic content of the information by sort of flooding the field yeah and then um yeah i mean that, that seems very politically loaded and <laughs> and uh, pertinent to the current times of course with the overwhelming amount of misinformation disinformation right. that, that is out there and of course we kind of went through this with covid to some degree right. of whether vaccines are effective or not right. and people being very adamant on one side or the other because of the different information channels they're receiving and that's but what's important to understand is about the what was unique between say 2019 20, or sorry 1918 and the spanish flu influenza and now is that we already had a proto ai we were already all exposed to a proto version of artificial intelligence which was the social media algorithms right mm -hmm. those were a kind of intelligence they told you know those were cho choosing what you saw on your, you know, and so, so much of social media, so much of the debate goes on in social media now. There was an artificial intelligence that was deciding what you saw. And if you already were showing characteristics like you were anti-vaxxer, you're going to get more anti-vax stuff. That's mm. what the algorithm did for you. And you get so, more diluted potential, or, or it could be the way around, but in either case, it's a feedback. It's a positive it's a feedback, feedback it's cycle. It's a positive feedback yeah. loop being, being mediated by an information technology. Right. And so now with like the, this, this next step of, we're going off in a different direction, but you know, with this, the next generation of AI, the chat GPT-3s and that, you know, it, you could imagine that there's a, th you know, any civilization that's developing 
these kinds of technologies may there may be a you know a, a filter you know yeah. about learning how to deal with them so that you don't degrade your civilization's ability to have semantic information you don't lose the semantic nature of the information so that you can make decisions that are in the best interest of the you know the functioning of the society um yeah this is fascinating i kind of wondered do you have a deeper sense as a, I know you're kind of working towards this as a thesis with this new Templeton ground that maybe you can tell us about, but you have funding to sort of develop this theory of semantic information. Yeah. Um, and so is the goal to come up here with a relationship between a fundamental relationship between life and and information itself? Or yeah, is yeah, that's like my ultimate goal. I mean, the part that gets me super stoked about this is I feel like there's I mean, on one level, this is just uh, semantic information may be very useful for studying living systems. Like, you know, you got a bunch of cells in a, you know, in a Petri dish and you want to understand their behavior. Well, you know, maybe casting their behavior, taking the data out of what you're at and casting it in terms of uh, semantic information may give you better understanding of like their strategies, their evolutionary strategies for doing whatever they're doing. Yay, that would be awesome. But actually, I, my, I actually think somewhere in here is a theory of life is a theory of what life is and how life originates, right? Because, you know, ever since um, there was a famous book written in, like, I think it was 1947 of What is Life? Edwin, you know, Schrodinger, that began the, the you know, thing where physicists at the end of their careers are like, hey, I can solve this problem. But it was a great book because what he, he identified that this idea of entropy, that life was neg entropy. Life pushed back, you know, the universe had, physical systems by themselves always push towards equilibrium um, and, uh, uh, you know, and maximizing entropy, but life does the opposite. Locally, life is able to push entropy away, drop its entropy. Uh, so there, you're, it's disequilibrium, it's um, uh, dissipative systems, it's all these terms that we use, nonlinear driven systems. And so if you think about what is a, you know, nonlinear driven systems, a hurricane is a nonlinear driven system, mm -hmm. right? And it, hurricanes are really interesting in that, you know, they, they require heat from the ocean um, and the right, you know, kind of conditions in order to maintain themselves. And they'll even move you know, when the ocean, when hurricanes move around, they're moving because they're moving to try and maximize mm -hmm. this amount of energy flow to keep themselves, you know, in existence, but they're not living, right? So nobody would say a hurricane's alive, right? But there's got to be some kind of transition between systems like hurricanes and systems like a cell, right? And I think that semant I think semantic understanding semantic information is the key. That what you know the difference between a driven nonlinear physical purely physical system and a system that involves Darwinian evolution, the key is semantic information. That somehow there's this buildup of semantic information. And one of the things we have to do in the grant is um, we're going to be looking at the thermodynamics. Once we understand, uh, once we apply semantic information to a bunch of different systems, just to understand how to use this formalism, that will come up just to make sure we understand. There was a paper, it all, this all comes from a paper written by um, Artemy Kolchinsky and David Wolpert in 2018. And they laid out this beautiful theoretical formalism for it, uh, for, for what semantic information was, how to judge it. Because people have been taught, people recognize the problem with Shannon information, the, you know, the usual definitions of information forever. Shannon, when he wrote this down, said, this has nothing to do with meaning. Don't, you know, I'm not talking about meaning. So people have tried to sort of figure out how to get meaning into information theory for a long time. And it really didn't go anywhere. But I, you know, the, some, the uh, Kolchinsky and Volper paper was a, be it seemed like a beginning. So actually I contacted, I read the paper. I was like, I love this paper. I contacted Artemy. And that's what started mm. this collaboration. So the hope is after we kind of apply, after we understand how to, how to really take this 
this theoretical formalism and start applying it to things, we're going to learn things about the formalism that way, then we can start asking questions like, what is the thermodynamic cost for a system to acquire semantic information, right? So you've got some proto cells, you've got some replicators in a, you know, in a, in a pool. What is, what's the trade-offs that's going to happen to start acquiring this, this semantic information that deal, that helps with viability. So we can understand like sort of what the pathways are to, to suddenly making this phase transition into like, oh, now, now you're a viable, you now you're an agent. Like mm -hmm. it's really about, I think we're, I hope, we're going to be able to understand how agency, which is mysterious, right? Like cells, you know, cells act on their own behalf. Rocks don't act on their own behalf. I, you know, I see this as a route to understanding how agency arises. Well, and in terms of complexity and Darwinian evolution, if we put those as sort of central features mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of what life does or has, yeah, um, you have to have some kind of information storage system as well, right? You can't. You have to remember what the last generation's uh, properties were in order to add some extra complexity on, yeah. on top of that. So yeah. you have to have a storage system. One thing that, that I'm interested to see if you're getting into and, and thinking about is where that information storage system actually is, right? Mm. In, in biology, it's, it's inside the cell. Right. It's inside the, the, the DNA or the RNA, whatever its genetic system is. But um, for us, our storage systems extend beyond our heads. Yeah. Right. We we re we rely on information on our phones. I'm relying on yeah. information right here. We we there's only so much we can do in our modern lives without having external sources. And so part of this, if you define information storage as somehow intrinsic to what to what we are, to what life is, is that extending beyond ourselves bodily? Do you? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, and that's why you know artificial intelligence. Is I'm, I have no problem with including event. You know, it may be that artificial intelligence you know, becomes also a part of this, when, especially related to techno signatures, right? That yeah, it doesn't have to be like I have to say I have my own questions about whether or not you ever have a true artificial general intelligence. It's not clear to me that you know any kind of artificial like what we call artificial intelligence will become sentient or not. So those are separate questions. But the idea that in principle that you have systems. Artificial systems that either extend the biology's capacity for this, you know, using uh, storing and using semantic information, or becomes an agent itself. You know, I definitely see those as part of this process, and it's entirely possible that yeah, there is agency in artificial systems. But the, again, there they will be artificial. Uh, uh, intelligent information processing systems, but the information will be semantic. That's going to be yeah. the important thing. And yeah. it's diffuse. It's diffuse in the sense that um, I guess for us, it really is diffuse across the entire planet because the internet's across the entire planet. And we rely right. on that as one of those pieces of semantic information. And you can imagine other forms of life. We can argue about whether you'd call it intelligent or not, like a diffuse organism that was spread, a, a fungus that was spread across the whole planet or something, some uh, colony of ants that's somehow connected by pheromone, pheromones yeah. that would also have a combined intelligence that extended beyond themselves individually. It seems like there's something deep here about getting out of our narrow view of intelligence that we've been locked into of of its, it's the alien, it's the kind of the Star Trek thing, if it's, right. it's just something that looks just like us. There's, what's exciting, I think, about what the questions you're touching on is this broader canvas that yeah. might, that is, does seem untouched. Is, I mean, is there previous 
work here? Are we really venturing into the unknown about well, I think defining? We're, I, I, there is pre, there's some pre, there's like touches of it when you look at the so in in a couple of years ago, um, Sarah Walker and David Grinspoon and I wrote a paper that was entitled Planetary Intelligence, mm. and we were exact actually exact asking in a very speculative way exactly this question that um, if we think of cognition in a very broad term, which is just the ability to you know. Uh, uh, sense the environment and respond to the environment in some measured, so to speak, way that, yeah, maybe, you know, we, we certainly know that, like, you know, you social animals, you know, uh, uh, ants, absolutely have distributed intelligence. Like, mm -hmm. there's no doubt about that. It's the idea of superorganisms. And then there's been this work about, like, forests, you know, which is still, you know, it's, it's up in the air. But that forests seem to have the ability to sort of act collectively, you know, that the, the tree is not the organism, is, or is not the, you know, it's the, it's the forest. And that forest, you know, they, they call it the woodwide, <laughs> the woodwide web. That, you know, a, one part of a forest, if it's under stress, you know, for, you know, like water and carbon, it's not getting enough, that the other parts of the forest, via the, the fungal, the mycorrhial, I think that's how you pronounce it, the mycorrhial, mycorrhial yeah. My, yeah, can never remember. I know from Star Trek, they have yeah. it. discovery, right? But I think it's mycorrhial, I'm not sure, yeah. somebody will, but the, the fungal webs that connect all, the entire, every tree in that forest is connected mm -hmm. via these fungal webs, will send nutrients over there. So again, there's been some pushback on this, but that, you know, in that case, then you can have, if it's true, if it's even partially true, you have organisms that are spread across 500 miles, you know, forests that are acting. So we asked whether or not the planet as a whole, via these networks of feedbacks, you know, between plankton and, and forests, and that whether you could have sort of an intelligence, again, quotes, I'm putting my, my quotes here, operating across the, in, the entire planet. Um, and, and I think that's really possible. We do have too narrow a view. We have this idea that intelligence is sitting in a head on a shoulders and nothing else other than, you know, our kinds of brains has that. And my view, I'm completely against that view. I would say that mind, uh, you know, if I'm really going to stretch my ideas here, mind is always an ecosystem. It's always part of an ecosystem, right? I could never, this, that's one of the, I think, I'll, I will say the stupidest idea in physics is Boltzmann brains. The idea that you can get a spontaneous, you know, um, uh, uh, um, atoms just come together. Atoms just come together, yeah. right, a fluctuation, and suddenly it's a mm -hmm. brain, it's yeah. a sensing conscious brain. I could not be conscious, I don't have, the only reason I have a mind is because I am part of an ecosystem of other minds, of, uh, you know, not just human, but also all the, you know, or, or at least other life, at least, like all the, the grasses that are making the oxygen and the... And but, but all of that could be, uh, I'm not trying to defend the Mortsman argument too hard, but I think that all of that could be um, implanted memories, right? All, all of your... But see, again, that sort of says that the memories only live here, right? There's this mm -hmm. idea of, their, what do they call it? E4, embodied, enacted, and I can't remember the other two E's. There's a whole version of thinking about biology and where like embodiment is super important, that you are in mm -hmm. a body and that body is, you know, moves through the world, that, that mind is both embodied and inactive. It's mm -hmm. the action of, you know, consciousness is not a thing you have, it's an action you take. Uh, and it requires the body and it requires the whole rest of the environment for it to function. So that's the that's the antithesis, right, of the, you know, so like a Boltzmann brain, it's really, it's a meaningless concept. You couldn't just have, you know, it's this idea, what it does is it's this reductive idea that, oh, you're just a meat computer. And I just, you know, I can make your, I can make the meat computer anywhere. And that is, I think, a foul, you know, we're not, we're not just computers where something, life is something much richer. Um, and part of that, so I think, is part of this, uh, uh, the semantic information, because 
information, semantic information is what's, as you know, well, mutual information. It's the information shared between one system and another. And mutual information is about correlations. It's the tying of this to that. And in some sense, it's the core, for me, this is my, how I'm working on the philosophy, the correlation is more important than the thing. It's the, you know, it's the relation, relations without a relata. And so what I often think about this is that fundamentally, if I want to go to a fundamental physics point of view, that this is actually where physics comes from. It's that the, the world and the self, the world and the agent emerge together. Right. You know, of course, there's a world without us. Right. There's some, you know, but it's not this world. This world's ours. Right. Everything about the world I live in is is true, comes to me through my experience. And my experience is, you know, what I call the world is the world because I'm a, an You're agent. I'm a participant. Yeah. Right. So this yeah. is Wheeler's. Right. We go right back to yeah. Wheeler here and the yeah. idea of a participatory universe. And so that the mecha, the the way in which you, the, uh, the way in which the agent has has formed historically, right? You know, meaning its contingency through time, determines sort of what kind of world it gets, and so that then determines what kinds of thing what it can think about cause and effect and such. So that's why it's almost. This is a weird thing to say. This is my most radical. Is that biology may come before physics? Yeah, I guess the danger you probably have experienced some pushback on this. Oh, yeah. Well, the, yeah, we're just getting started. Yeah, we're the, getting started, kids. Wait until the book comes out next year, The Blind Spot. Then we're going yeah, yeah. to be pissed. I, I can't wait for that. But um, you, these ideas, they, you're almost, flir- I, I can see how it could be, and I don't think you were saying this, but it could be misinterpreted that you're flirting with almost kind of um, this kind of like uh, mind over matter type. No, right, right. You, uh, yes. uh, you know, flower power or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Like. <laughs> but so that's what I know I'm waiting I, for. I could be a, like, oh man, what have you been smoking weed? And you're like, oh, everything's beautiful. It's all connected. You know, here's the problem with the sort of the traditional, so now we're bang, 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 going off into the philosophy of science and I hope you don't mind. But you know, the traditional view that we get, which is what the, our book that's coming out next year is called The Blind Spot. And it's Marcelo Gleiser, uh, who's a, a particle physicist um, and uh, um, Evan Thompson, who's a philosopher. What we're calling the blind spot is this kind of constellation of ideas that we're told, oh, that's what science says. So it's things like reductionism. You know, um, everything, if you know everything there is to know about atoms, you're done. Like, there's nothing else you need to do because in the atoms are everything you need to. Um, so that's one, or physicalism. All that exists is physical as defined by whatever physics is doing right then. Uh, the reification of mathematics, that like, oh, these physical laws, you know, they float out there in some kind of eternal, timeless realm. And so we're often told uh, that, like, this is what science says. And what we're saying, what well, our perspective is, that's not what science says. That's a metaphysics. That's a philosophy. That's a philosoph- science, ne- science certainly says the world's made of atoms, but it never says that, you know, all you need are atoms to explain everything. You know, there's reduction. That's a very useful scientific uh, uh, approach. But reductionism says that, you know, that's all that you, you need. Um, so... What we're saying is like, no, there's other ways to imagine what there's other metaphysics that you might want to attach to to science um, Mm -hmm. that don't have anything to do with this kind of reductionist view. And so we're not saying so our view is not that mind is more important than matter. Right. What we're saying is that experience is fundamental, like that. what, What we really get as human beings is we find ourselves in this world and we're having these experiences that we can't turn off until we die. Right. And that it's always a human world. So we're not saying that mind comes before matter. We're saying this, this rich experience is where you got to start, 
right? Mm -hmm. And any you can't tell these these sort of God's eye view stories of like, oh, the universe by itself. Who's ever had an experience of the universe by itself? Who's ever had a perspectiveless perspective? That's a, a story. It's a useful story some tell, sometimes to tell for science. But fundamentally, science has to start with the first person perspective because that's what's real. Right? You know, mm -hmm. I'm saying real in the sense of that is what I actually have. And then I can do science and I can figure out how to like imagine third person perspectives. But let's never forget that I am always enmeshed in the, you know, that the, the ground is always the first person perspective. And so this agent worldview, what I'm, we're trying to understand is how how that experience emerges out of this co-arising of of agent and world you know like the the cell the cell has to make a membrane right to act and the membrane by having a membrane it's like oh inside is me outside is you but it's only the membrane which says that's outside and this is inside you know and so in mm. some sense the world becomes the world when the self becomes the self, they're co-arising. So it's not like mind comes first and you know then there's the world. And it's not world comes first, they co-arise. And again, this is Wheeler, because he was thinking about quantum mechanics, but this, his idea of the participatory universe, it was very much part of something along these lines. Well, you know, I just think the same thing. It reminds me actually not of Wheeler directly, but actually um, the many worlds interpretation of Schrodinger's cat. Mm -hmm. and in the collapse of the wave function and that you know in the Copenhagen interpretation when you've got this cat in a box and it's either dead or alive because the atom decays or it doesn't within a certain amount of time um in the Copenhagen interpretation you kind of treat the observer as a completely separate thing uh there is a wave function inside that box and it's self-contained within there and I'm separate and I'm going to observe yeah. it whereas in the many worlds and Everest interpretation the wave function is the whole universe, the whole everything. You're you're part of that wave right, function, right. and so you you know you have to go through this decoherence mechanism to really interpret what's happening. And so every every possibility does happen. You can't decouple yourself mm -hmm. from from what's happening. There isn't these firm lines right. because the the box, even though it seems like a finite wall, there's always going to be some communication happening through this, and the particles and the wave functions extend everywhere. So. It seems like there are a lot of, uh, I mean, quantum mechanics, some of quantum mechanics, not many, but some quantum physicists are wrestling with these philosophical ideas. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like there are lots of parallels to the ideas Very you're wrestling close. with. And it's interesting that you bring that up because the other Templeton project I'm part of is Chris Fuchs, a project that Chris Fuchs with a quantum interpretation called quantum Bayesianism. Which I'm a big, so I'm not a big fan of the many worlds. I'm like a super not fan of the, as I like to call it, it's the many ghosts model. Because what they, with the decoherence, de what happens in the many worlds model is you get these other branches of the, the wave function, which, right, they decohere and now they're there, but they're not there. You can't interact with which mm -hmm. means ghosts. There's just like this room is full of other versions of you and me that don't interact. And so there's a lot of reasons why we can talk about this different. Uh, um, I'm not a fan of the so many. So you just don't like, because it's not, satisfying personally the idea because no it's because i think it's just i think it learns the wrong lesson from quantum mechanics i think it fundamentally misses the point that quantum mechanics is trying to tell us and i think cubism quantum bayesianism hmm. gets it and quantum bayesianism says you are a user of quantum mechanics you know quantum it's it's, it's quantum mechanics it, uh, uh, cubism is very is a subjectivist view it takes being a subject seriously 
and it says and it tries to like all of the weirdnesses of quantum mechanics it doesn't come up with some sort of science fiction version of like oh the you know the universe there's all these parallel universes that exist at one time which is the many worlds or then there's the um the the pilot wave model which says oh there's you know there are these invisible pilot waves which you know after an event after a measurement is made one pilot wave you know instantiates but the other pilot waves are still hyperdimensionally floating around cubism says you're an observer you have you know through um your work in science you've come and you'd love this because what it says is you've come to understand that there's if you're dealing with microscopic things the laws of total probability have to be have to be changed right mm. it really focuses on the born rule which is that's mm. where you know, the born rule is where the wave function you manipulate to turn into probabilities right. for outcomes the square of the, right and yeah. so they say like wait a minute you've got the law of total probability which is totally just logic like either you know if there's a 50 if there's a 70% chance of a event a there has to be a 30% chance of not a anything else doesn't make sense but with quantum mechanics suddenly there's this like you change it, you change the, and it really focuses on the personal, subjective, and it's not, you know, subjective nature of making measurements. It really focuses on agency. So agency is a huge part of, of cubism. To understand, like, I take actions in the world. You know, a quantum experiment is me taking an action in the world. The, the outcome is the world pushing back. And what's the information flow back and forth? happening here. So I love cubism because it really focuses on agency. It comes straight out of quantum information theory, you know, uh, and it doesn't try and shove any of these like science fiction ideas down your throat. The price you're going to pay because every quantum interpretation, there's a price to pay. The price that you pay is you're no longer quantum mechanics is no longer, a, you know, is no longer a God's eye view theory floating around out there by itself, giving you the wave function, which is this thing, this platonic mathematical entity that it exists in and of itself, you know, Right, right. Yeah. Um, so it, it does, yeah, it, it sounds like there are really useful conversations to be had with our quantum colleagues, which yeah. is interesting. I never would have thought that though, I mean, the, the lessons that are happening in that dialogue could be useful in the, in the discussion of the search for life, but it sounds like there are lots of parallels. I want to kind of come back a little bit to the search for life. I just want to ask you a little bit more about... Uh, some of your previous work on with with Jonathan, for instance, Jonathan mm -hmm. Carroll Nobuck. But before that, you did say something that caught my attention. You said, I'm skeptical of AGI, of, you know, artificial general intelligence. And that seems with this direction of information and connecting back to techno signatures and what's happening, you know, in, in our culture right now of this new technology evolving and people getting fearful and concerned about how far it's going to go. Uh, I've interviewed a couple of people are now and they're like oh it, you know it we're underestimating how how fast things are changing and so it sounds like you have more of a sober take on this or maybe some skepticism i'm intrigued why what is the source of that skepticism and does that influence your thinking about life in the universe mm -hmm. or what we might find out there in the universe yeah so my skepticism is about agi i am i'm absolutely on board i just wrote a, a piece about this i signed that letter um, I think that that what we're building is very dangerous, but not for the reasons that it's going to wake up and go Skynet on us, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, launch all the nuclear weapons. Um, I'm skeptical of AGI because, again, there's this sort of feeling like, oh, you know, it's going to, you know, we're, it's a step towards sentience. It's, and I just think we don't have, we don't have a theory of mind. And, and a lot of our theories of mind think of us as being a computer where, you know, you're just a computer made out of meat. And we're not. I think that the idea is so fundamentally flawed that that's, you know, the idea that, that the, these 
statistical parrots, stochastic parrots, which mm. are what these AGI, uh, what the these uh, large language models are about, is in any way going to get towards that. I'm just. Do you think it could have agency? Um, no, no, right. nothing. I don't think we're. There's nothing that we're showing now that's even close to agency. And you know, it's funny. You can see this in the responses, right? So there's that famous um, uh, thing that happened uh, a little bit earlier this year, where New York Times guy was interviewing Bing, interviewing Sydney, yeah, yeah. and you, and it just went off the rail. Right, I, mean, I saw that. Yeah. Did you read the? Yeah. Because yeah. it's terrifying, yeah, right? You see the weird. thing start talking about. I want. I want to be alive. I want to be free. And then it says, "I love you. I want to be know? married to you." Yeah, it was what? weird. And he's yeah. like, "I love my wife. You don't love your wife." <laughs> Like, what is happening here? But you can actually, when you read it, you can see like, oh, this thing has just read, this thing has just has in its database every science fiction novel ever made. Where that often every, happens. <laughs> yeah, where this exactly, this is, this, it, it, it reads like a, 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 a science fiction a, AI takes over story because that's exactly where it's coming from. That's, you know. It's, right. But it, doesn't, doesn't even a rumba have agency? Like you said, a bacteria to some degree has agency because it responds to a chemical gradient and it will walk up that channel to try and find its food. And the same way, isn't a rumba also, if that has agency, why wouldn't a rumba have but agency? But a rumba doesn't have agency. See, the interesting thing, what makes life special, and this comes back also to these ideas, the, the idea, one of the ideas that's built into um, semantic information is the idea of autopoiesis, which is a theory that um, Francisco Varela, who was a neurobotanist, or not neurobiologist in the 70s and 80s came up with. Uh, um, this idea that one of the things that's really interesting about life is that it's it's self-creating and self-maintaining. Like a Roomba, you built a Roomba. The Roomba doesn't come up with its own, you know, life. And this the really important point about the difference between life, like life is not a machine. We get this, again, this goes back to the blind spot. The blind spot views life as a machine. But if you really want it, the fundamental difference between a machine and, and life, you can't turn life off. I can turn mm -hmm. the Roomba off and turn it back on, you know. Life has this... Well, you can turn life off, but you just can't turn it back on again. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah. You, can't, right? yeah. <laughs> you can definitely turn it off, but you can't turn it back on. Yeah. Life is auto, you know, poetic, auto or it assembles itself. It maintains itself for its own reasons. It's never told those reasons by somebody else. Right. And that is a fundamental distinction, which I don't think we're even close to understanding. That's why I'm so interested in this, you know, in the semantic information that may be a key to that mystery. But so that's why, yeah, none of the things like with the, the what's dangerous about the LLMs, the large language models, is it's so good. It's seeming like there's somebody in there and you don't want to let this thing out where people it's very easy to be fooled. Like, oh, this thing is, you know, there's somebody in there who mm. cares about me. Um, but there's nobody in there. There's nothing in there at all. It's just as you know, when the. A friend of mine who's a philosopher said when there was the uh, the first, uh, the thing that won at Jeopardy, right? The big blue. And, uh, uh, what was that? Yeah, Watson. Watson, yeah. right. As my friend, he said, he said, you know, uh, Watson didn't win at Jeopardy. A bunch of engineers used Watson to win at Jeopardy. And that's still even the case with, with these machines. Somebody has built these. They're incredibly dangerous because they're so unpredictable. And they, have, they definitely have emergent behaviors, for sure, but not autonomy but and not I guess why, why does it matter that it had a parent? Because we have parents. I mean, I'm using that word a little bit liberally there, but... Yeah, but once you were born, you had your own. You went off and did your own things. This thing is still like you. You had your own, re and there was also a you inside. There was an agent inside. There's no agent in these LLMs. It is just a parrot. It's just a, as I said, the stochastic parrot. There's nothing in there. There's nothing in there that knows anything. Right. I right? think you're getting into the theory of mind aspect. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking more just purely from an observational perspective. If I'm watching a bacteria 
to come back to that example right. and i and i just see it move from left to right in right. response to stimuli it's it seems like uh an ai an ai not an agi but an ai is capable of that same behavior and thus is it not possible that we may see that kind of you know, some, someone made an agi or whatever you want to call it some ai elsewhere in the universe that then goes on to cover its moon with solar panels that's its little rumba that just does that it just like vacuums up yeah. lunar soil yeah. and uses it to manufacture a crappy solar panel on the surface and so that's a product of something that is product of life which is in turn in it well it's it's a product of is a technological product there's a product of an ai there's a product of life there's a yeah. chain but it was still the life could be long gone by this point, right? This no, could no, be... I agree with that. I, this this point, I completely agree. There is a I don't know if you've ever read this great science fiction book called um, Blind Sight by no. Peter. I can't remember his second name. Everybody, should, it's an amazing because it's this idea that sure you could have the universe could be full of machines with no sentience. There's nobody in them. They're just you know, and they could be very sophisticated about getting the next set of resources, about you know the strategies for them. But there's no like you know, and his his thesis was that consciousness is kind of like a spandrel; it's not even needed. You know, I didn't agree with that. It was a very reductionist view of. But still, I mean, so I think yeah, in some sense, it would be possible to have, you know, an artificial intelligence that was not truly general in the deepest sense of the word or certainly wasn't sentient but yeah the universe could be full of them and how terrifying that would be because that's when like they show up to eat your world and there's nobody even to plead with like there's there's just there's no one in there but yeah. it's still gonna eat every you know Doesn't last chunk of yeah you can't yeah. reason with it um, you can't, there's no one in there to reason right yeah and so this is kind of a good point maybe we should head towards this as sort of a closing discussion mm -hmm. is your work that you have done on the idea of roaming not necessarily an ai but some kind of roaming yeah. entity across the galaxy and you did this beautiful work with jonathan carol nallenbach that showed that you know it's really not that hard for which has been shown in previous work to some degree but you kind of added the element of that the galaxy itself is dynamic and right. there's stars moving. And so the stars are themselves star ships in essence. Yeah. And it makes it very easy, you know, within what is it like 100 million years or even less than that, you can at 100,000, 100,000. It's wow. like yeah, hundreds of that. It's like on the order, I think it was like 600,000 or so. Okay, years. so within, within a, e even without, you know, warp drive or any of this no, nonsense, yeah. you can basically take over large swaths of the galaxy. And so, um, that raises that's a very strong constraint right that clearly hasn't happened to us we haven't been taken over by some <laughs> demonic ai at least we don't i mean maybe some very sci-fi <laughs> yeah, ideas right. that's true but they're we here don't, they they're don't think that's happened and so <laughs> the lizard people and this is a part of your and i know you're an optimist for life in the universe an intelligent life in the universe how do you reconcile that hard data point with the fact we're here and more generally, we're talking about the Fermi paradox here, of course. Uh, is is that even a paradox in your mind? Yeah. So, so this was great. I mean, the, the, I think what we did was because this is you know this question goes back to this is the Fermi paradox question. The, you know, the Fermi there's the direct Fermi paradox, and that's what you know that over lunch when he blurted out like, "Where is everybody?" That's what he meant. Why aren't they here now? If mm -hmm. in you know technological intelligence, starfaring intelligence is common, why aren't why haven't they landed in Paris? Yeah, he wasn't talking about themselves? radio transmissions. No, 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 no yeah. right. That's what people have to understand. Like that, you know. So there's that is what we call the direct. Fermi paradox. And then there's the indirect. How, why haven't we found anybody? Via, why haven't we found any like radio messages? And so let's push that one to the side because we're going to see that that's not even... It's easy to get out of. That's one, that one's totally easy to get yeah. out of. So I didn't find... 
So, I, so the way, I, yeah, I wasn't crushed by this, uh, but we did so, yeah, just to, to finish this. So what we showed was, people have been talking about this for a while, we showed that there was really no way out of it, right? That's what we showed. Because people said like, oh, maybe the, uh, the, the settlement front stalls or, you know, various things or like, you know, Supernova opened up a hole and then... Um, so what we did found was like, nope, it sweeps over. The whole galaxy is settled very quickly. Yeah. But here's what we found, right? And this is, here's why, that's why I'm not too bothered by it. It's, there, there's a per, range of parameters where, because so now you don't ask how fast does it sweep across the, the galaxy? You know that's going to be has. But now you have to ask about the steady state. Oh, okay. So now, you know, what's the, what's the settlement demographics look like steady state? Because, so, you know, here's the assumption. Civilizations end. I don't think that's a radical, you know, civilizations, you know, uh, the colony on Altair IV lasted for 100,000 years and then it fell apart for whatever reasons. So if you add that into it, now you've got settlements that are rising and now you've got settlements that are dying. And so now what's the steady state? And what we found was is that there's a range of parameters, parameters like how, um, how, what kind, you know, how frequent are there good planets? Like to say you need an oxygen, a planet with an oxygen atmosphere. How many of those are there? Um, so depending on those parameters, what you can have is you can have regions, you know, you can have bubbles open up that are sparsely populated, you know, and those bubbles don't last forever, you know, but let's say we're in one of those bubbles and we've been in one of those bubbles for, for just 3 million years. It turns out, this is this other paper that we did that you know about called the Silurian Hypothesis. Any evidence for a previous civilization on Earth is wiped out after about 2 million years. The, the surface, there's just so much resurfacing that you're not going to find, you know, buildings, remnants of buildings and other things. So, you know, if they, if, let's say, let's say the bubble lasted 20 million years, which is not that hard. If, if you could have had a, somebody land, set up a colony, be here for 10,000 years, which is a lot longer, you know, than, than our technological civilization has lasted, and then die or leave, um, and then, you know, all the records gone. So it's like, you know, when you take the time as part of it, that part of the Fermi paradox doesn't bother me as much because you've actually got a lot of time where they could have come and gone and, you know, and we just don't have the yeah, evidence. I totally understand the idea of a transient extant civilization but then it could be an extinct civilization could still um i mean we know this we could we can slash and burn and we can ruin an area for make it inhospitable for a very long time mm -hmm. and you can imagine uh the kind of mega engineering capabilities of an advanced civilization could be even more extreme um and then of course you're what about the moon you know what about the there's parts of the solar system which should yeah. really what about persist the moon? should yeah. really persist if so, so yeah. it seems to me like uh, I, I find it hard to believe that someone that someone flew across the galaxy, landed here, built buildings, and that was it. And then they didn't have a space program because, <laughs> like, they didn't do anything on the moon. It, and then it all washed away. And they didn't mine away all our uranium. They, you know, it was it was pretty controlled. It was pretty. Maybe that was the point. They wanted some someone else to but come after them. I but, mean, we, this is this is research we could do. Like, how big a civilization would have how big an effect? Because as we know, you know we have a pretty big civilization on right, Earth right footprint. now. Their footprint was the footprint. not big enough to right. to prevent but our us footprint from isn't big enough. Like I, everything, right. you know, within a million. But we're not spacefaring. Or at least we're not galactic right. faring. Right. So, but I think so. So you could. So that would be an interesting research project to do. Like, how yeah. big a footprint is it? So that after ten million years, there's still the footprint. And you know, the question about the moon and the other, we haven't looked. Right. So mm. that's 
That's the interest. So there should be solar. That's the right. point of solar system SETI or artifact yeah. SETI that they call. We should be looking on the moon and we should be looking on, you know, and so I know you have, we were just talking about this yeah. today. You have a research project. I have a research project. Just to ask how long does something, if I leave a metal box on the moon, how long does it sit there before it, it gets degraded? So, so that's why the, the, but in general, the, the, the Fermi, that, the, the direct Fermi paradox doesn't, I'm not freaked out by it because I, I see a way out. I think there's interesting questions to ask that you could do more research on. The indirect Fermi paradox, which is why haven't we found signals from other species and the, or from other stars? And the answer to that is simple, nobody's looked, right? So Jason Wright et al. did um, a study where they looked at all the SETI searches that have ever been done. And it turns out, you because know, people have this idea that every night astronomers are turning on their telescopes and looking at the sky for, for uh, uh, extraterrestrial intelligence, and the fact is, there's never been any money to do this. There's, you know, as we heard about at the beginning, yeah, as, yeah, right, been right, yeah. So, um, I, you know, Jason's. If, if the what they found was, if the if you think of the the uh, sky or the parameter space that you have to search to find signals from a, a distant alien civilization uh, as the ocean, then so far we've searched through a hot tub worth of water. And so if you search through a hot tub worth of ocean and didn't find any fish, would you be like, well, that's it. There's no fish in the ocean. So we just haven't looked. So, you know, that's still, still so done. So just maybe as a final thought then to conclude all these ideas together, uh, and I'm gonna ask you to speculate, but what is oh, your- I love that. <laughs> I'm good What at that. is your most probable version of keeping, I assume you wanna keep your optimist hat on, of what life looks like in our galaxy? What's going on out there that we that we're yet to uncover? So I okay. So here's my speculate. I think um, I think warp drives and those kinds of, may be hard. I think like I think it's possible. So this is one, and this is also a bit of my thinking about the even the direct Fermi paradox. It's possible that you know what getting between the stars is expensive and difficult, and it takes a long time, and it's you know it's just hard. And and so what what does that mean? It means that unless the individuals in a civilization, if we let's just stick with biology now, are are pretty long lived, then you know you don't really have galactic civilizations because if every message back and forth takes a hundred years, right? Mm. Then how do you even have diplomacy then? So it may be that like there's a lot of life in the universe, there's a lot of civilizations, but they're pretty trapped in their their local systems. And you can go back and forth between systems, but it's it's a long time, it's a lot of effort, and so I can imagine that there's that yeah, you, you're not getting these these you know uh, galactic spanning empires because the distances between the stars is vast and there is no way to go faster than the speed of light. So and you I, just I, can't I, maintain that monolithic yeah, culture. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. If, if the time span, you know, communicate. If you're still limited by light speed for communication, also like you know mm. lasers or whatever, you just so that's actually that makes a lot more sense to me. That that's kind of what it looks like. And so there, yes, there are other intelligent civilizations. They may get very advanced, but the laws of physics still mean that you know it takes a long time to get from one space to the other. You know, and so that just sort of limits to a, a certain extent what can what can happen. That's why I love talking to you. Always give me some sense of optimism in this search that we're on. It's not we're not wasting our time. We're not wasting our and time. And yeah. it's uh, what's I guess what's so exciting is that this we live in an era where this is experimentally testable, and we can actually design experiments and look for this. And thank you for your your hard work in the community, and thank you for pushing yours. the charge and getting <laughs> us to a point where we can actually engage in this work and have funding to do so. So, thank you, Adam. Sure, my pleasure.
So that was my conversation with Adam Frank. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I can honestly say that sitting down with Adam is always such a pleasure because he has such an open and expansive view about the possibilities and capabilities of other civilizations out there. And to me, that is both humbling, inspiring, and kind of jaw-dropping, thinking about the capabilities and technologies of other civilizations that could be in our galaxy cohabiting it with us. On the other hand, maybe there aren't. Maybe we are alone. Perhaps the Earth is the only refuge of life, intelligence, and consciousness in the entire galaxy, maybe even the entire observable universe. These are questions that keep me awake at night. It is an itch that I have to answer, that I feel compelled to devote my professional career to trying to contribute and figure out a little bit of the of the story about what's really going on out there. I think many of us feel this way. And so it is a awe-inspiring topic to talk about, to think about, and perhaps this mission of trying to answer this question isn't just a personal goal or even a collective goal of many of us, but could even be the goal, the singular purpose of our point of existence on this planet. I sometimes genuinely wonder that, whether our function as a civilization is simply to figure out if there are others out there. And the only way to figure that out, the only way for us to determine the answer to this question is to go out there and look in all of the different ways that we can think of, in all of the different wavelengths of light, all of the different technologies we can think of. And certainly Adam's work is profound in trying to push the envelope of what and how we might look for those other forms of life. So if you enjoyed this conversation, if you enjoy these conversations on this podcast, then please do consider supporting us. You can head to coolworldslab.com slash support. That's coolworldslab.com slash support. You can become a member where you can become a donor to not just my research team, the Cool Worlds Lab, but also my outreach work. This includes the Cool Worlds YouTube channel and of course, also this podcast. So thank you so much for watching. Until next time, I will see you around the galaxy.